As we dive into Philippians chapter 1 this morning, I want to give you a little window into my life and maybe make a little confession, and that is that I absolutely love the Rocky movies, uh, all of them. I love some of them, of course, more than others. I realize they are of varying quality, uh, quite to a great extent, actually, of varying quality. Uh, but uh, the Rocky movies have been going on. They've been making these pretty much my whole life, right? The first one came out in 1976. There are now seven movies that center around Rocky Balboa and his world. And uh, I love them probably for the reason that most people who love them love them. And that's because Rocky is always an underdog, but always seems to find a way to win in the end, right? Now, if you're familiar with the storyline, of course, you realize there's a couple of movies where he doesn't technically win his fight, right? But it doesn't really matter because he loses by decision and you're going, yeah, but he won, right? Even though he lost the decision, we know that he actually won. And in fact, if he loses, he just comes back in the next movie and wins, right? That's what they do. They just make another one. If Rocky ever loses, you know there's another movie coming, Right, So I've watched all of them from when he first lost by a close decision to Apollo Creed to Rocky II where he comes back and beats Apollo Creed to Rocky III where he beats Mr. T, right? Rocky IV where he beats a Russian guy, Rocky V I don't remember very well and not many people saw that one, Rocky Balboa a few years ago, he's 60 and he stands up against the heavyweight champion of the world and now he's training Apollo Creed's son, to fight. There's another movie coming out in November. Apollo Creed's son is going to fight the son of the Russian, Ivan Drago, who killed Apollo Creed. You guys following me? All right. This is amazing. And I love these stories because you've got a guy who always seems to come back from the jaws of defeat and grab victory. Now, how does that happen? How is Rocky so good? Well, here's how. Sylvester Stallone writes the stories, right? So he can put his own character in the role of the victor. Now, I share that because as we read throughout the Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all the way to the end of the Scripture, we see a storyline in which there are times in which God's plan seems on the verge of defeat, and yet God always finds a way to win. Because God wrote the story. Right? God created the universe. God created mankind. God wrote the story. And so God always wins in the end. God always outlasts his opposition, right? So if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament in the story of Israel, remember God chose this people, the descendants of Abraham, and he said, through you, I want to create a kingdom of priests, of men and women who will worship me, who will reflect me, who will proclaim who I am to all the nations so the world can know God. And yet Israel disobeyed. They wandered away. They faced opposition from the pagan nations, from Babylon, from Assyria, from the Philistines, from all the Canaanites. And at every turn, it seemed like God's plan was on the verge of defeat, and yet God keeps working and working to preserve his people, to lead his people, to carry his plan forward, to create a kingdom of people who will proclaim who he is. When we get to the New Testament, after 400 years of silence and oppression, God steps in and he steps in, beginning with the book of Matthew. 
And we see that he sends his own son, Jesus Christ, a member of the nation of Israel. But Jesus comes to save the entire world from the enemies that are threatening God's plan, from sin, from hell, from death, from Satan. Right? In fact, the gospel itself is a story of God snatching victory back from what seemed to be the jaws of defeat, right? Because Jesus was murdered by his countrymen and the pagan nations. He was in the grave, but he rose. And so the story of the gospel itself is a story of God bringing victory to life out of the worst kind of defeat from death to life. Right, so as we move through the New Testament then, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the people of God who believe in Jesus, they begin to share the message, right? They begin to tell people, Jesus is alive. God wins the victory. But what happens? They face opposition at every turn. They face persecution. They face imprisonment. They face death. There's division in the body of Christ. People fighting. There's sin in the body of Christ. People disobeying God. And yet God keeps working. The Spirit of God continues to move, to spread the gospel, not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but all throughout the known world. So the gospel continues to grow, even in the face of opposition. When we get to the book of Revelation, in the face of opposition from Satan himself, from death and hell, God wins in the end. God always wins. And this is so critical to understand as we move into Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18 this morning. Because remember, as Paul was writing the book of Philippians, where was Paul? He was in jail. Why was he in jail? For preaching the gospel, right? So Paul had every reason to think this way. Look, I lined up with Jesus Christ and I preached the gospel and I wanted people to know Jesus. But what happened to me? I'm in jail. Facing defeat, facing death, facing loss, right? And yet Paul maintains a joy that is supernatural. As you read the book of Philippians, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, it just oozes with the joy of the Spirit of God because Paul knows this, even in the face of possible and seeming defeat, God will win. Paul knows I'm on the winning team. Even as I'm sitting in jail for the sake of the gospel, I'm on the winning team. And so he can proclaim over and over and over again, I will rejoice, I will rejoice. And you should rejoice because you're on the winning team because God has given his people the victory over death and hell. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the great passages in the Bible about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this, the sting of death is sin, And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you can know that you are on the winning team in terms of eternity. Think about that for a minute. No matter what happens to you in this life, even up to and including death, no matter what happens to you, you're on the winning team. If you know Jesus Christ, you have eternal life that is forever secure and nobody can take it away because Jesus rose from the dead. If you know Jesus Christ, you know that one day you will be among the multitudes worshiping before the throne of God in the new heavens and the new earth where God will defeat every single enemy. You are on the winning team. If you know that, if I know that, 
What kind of boldness then would that knowledge provide for us as we move into the world and we say, okay, I know Jesus Christ. I know he's alive and God has called me to share the gospel. But what's going to happen if I go into my workplace or I go into my neighborhood or I go into my family and I share the gospel? I proclaim the name of Jesus. What's going to happen? I will face opposition. Some people won't like it. I might be ostracized. I might lose friends. I might get passed over for a promotion. Some people will not like it, right? And as we read Philippians chapter one, here's what we see Paul saying. Even in the face of those circumstances, you're on the winning team. God has a plan that he will carry out to create a kingdom of men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to know him and worship him and proclaim him. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you're a part of that plan. And so you can go into the world and boldly share the gospel knowing that God will always overcome. That's what Philippians chapter 1, 12 to 18 is about. Let me read the passage this morning then for us as we talk about how God always wins. Starting in verse 12, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. The first thing Paul says is this, God always wins because he overcomes even difficult circumstances. Here's what Paul, Paul says. He goes, look, I want you to know, even here in jail, my imprisonment has served actually to further the progress of the gospel. Now, when you read that, when I first read that, I thought that seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? Like Paul is tossed in prison and then there are other people that go, because he's in prison, we're going to share Jesus, right? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Somebody else might die, so I'm going to go do the thing that's getting him maybe killed. But, but here's what Paul is getting at. Why is it that people are emboldened to share the gospel in the face of his suffering? Because they recognize that if Paul is willing to suffer, If Paul is willing to go to jail, the message must be worth it. And Paul must believe it's true. Uh, Some time ago, I read a book about the types of people who climb Mount Everest. Maybe you have read about the climbing of Mount Everest and and you know that it it is an ordeal, right? A lot of people who go to climb Mount Everest don't come back. People die every single year trying to climb Mount Everest. If you were to say today, I want to go climb this mountain, it would cost you at a minimum $45,000, right? For for most people, that makes it inaccessible in and of itself. But people save for a lifetime. And then they go and they risk death and, and frostbite and freezing and months of their time. And when they go, they know that other people have died up there, right? They know it. They've heard about it. And so as you read books about the people who climb Mount Everest, the question is always like, what kind of person goes to do that when they know it will entail suffering and expensive, expensive costs and maybe death? What kind of person does that? Right? And the consensus is generally like crazy people, right? People who are insane. But actually, as you read, it's often this, that they look at the pain and the suffering and the hardship of those who made it to the top and they say, it must be worth it. There must be something up there worth climbing for if people are willing to sacrifice that much to get to the top of that mountain. And so they go. That's what Paul is saying. That as he was suffering for 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were people who saw and heard about his suffering and they said, if he believes it that deeply, if he's willing to sacrifice that greatly, then it's worth it to go proclaim the message of eternal life. And in fact, the the impact of Paul's suffering is even elevated by his own response to it. Here's what I mean. As I mentioned earlier, Paul's letter here just oozes with joy. So that as Paul is in prison for the gospel, he's joyful because he knows he's a part of what God is doing. Now imagine for a second if Paul had not responded that way, right? If Paul's letter is like, hey, greetings from the prison. It's terrible here. The food is awful. The bread is dry. The guards are cranky. It's cold. I hate it. I hate it. Not recommended, right? And then signed off it would not have made nearly the impact as this man who says it's absolutely worth it. Everything that I am enduring. He says that the message spread to the whole Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was a special group of soldiers that worked for the emperor in Rome. They were an elite group, but there were several thousand of them. Some of them are apparently guarding Paul as he is awaiting his trial before Caesar. And they see how he responds to his suffering. And they begin to tell their fellow soldiers, you got to hear about this guy. He may be crazy, but he believes in what he's doing. And he's joyful. And the message spreads to other Christians, he says, who hear the message and they're emboldened to proclaim the gospel. Because what Paul knows is God always wins. He's on the winning team. He overcomes even the most difficult of circumstances. Paul is not saying that it's great to be in prison, by the way. He's not like, man, if I could have dreamed how my life would turn out, it would be in a prison shackled to a Roman soldier. But instead, he says, even in these dark circumstances, God is at work. God is moving the gospel forward. And as we look throughout the New Testament, there is a principle that we see, and it's here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, if you and I say, I want to boldly share Jesus Christ, Paul says you will face opposition. You will face persecution. Now, I want to be clear. We don't face persecution the type of persecution here in this country that people do in other places around the world. In fact, uh, my wife and I were having lunch with some friends of ours yesterday who had just come home from a country overseas, and they were describing how in the country they were in, sharing the gospel is illegal. Free assembly is illegal. You can't get together and talk about Jesus, or you will be interrogated. If you're American, they'll kick you out. If you're a national, they'll put you in jail. And he said, we take it for granted. It's so great to be able to meet and worship like this without fear of persecution and fear of being shut down, right? And that's absolutely true. We don't face that level of persecution, but I guarantee because Paul says it, if you go into the world, into your place of work, into your neighborhood, into your family, and you boldly proclaim the name of Jesus and you say, Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life, you will face opposition because it won't be a popular message. And Paul says, I know that everybody who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will face this opposition. But in the face of that opposition, Paul knows God always wins. The gospel will go out. 
God's plan will be accomplished. The question is not whether God will draw people to Jesus Christ from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's not a question. God will do that. The only question is, will you and I participate? That's it. The only question is, will you and I have the privilege of participating in what God is doing, even in the face of opposition? All right, so Paul says, I know God always wins, even in the face of difficult circumstances. But he says it's not only external opposition that God can overcome. It's also imperfect messengers, sinful messengers. Look at verses 15 to 18. He says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Here's what Paul says. There were two types of people sharing the gospel as a result of Paul's imprisonment. There were two types of people. One was a group of people that said, man, we love Paul, and we love the gospel. And because Paul is in jail and he can't share the gospel right now, we're going to pick up where he left off, right? So these are people who loved Paul. And he says they're preaching the gospel out of love. But then there was another group that they're preaching the gospel out of what he calls selfish ambition. And here's what I think he means. He's saying there's a group of people that looked at Paul and the fact that Paul had a thriving ministry and Paul's ministry was growing and people were trusting Jesus and people were praising not only Jesus, but in some cases, people were impressed with Paul, right? So these people look and they go, Paul himself has a platform, but now he's in jail. And so this is my chance for my platform to gather people around me instead of Paul. And so they begin to preach the gospel and gather Paul's followers to themselves, right? So they're preaching out of rivalry and selfish ambition to cause him distress, even in his imprisonment. And what is Paul's response? The gospel's preached. And that's ultimately all that he cares about about, right? There's this rivalry, right? He could, he could get really petty about this. I was thinking about this this week, so I'm going to share just a little bit from my own life. Um, about uh, five or six years ago, some of the other pastors here at Grace and I, we wrote a, a Bible study, right? We wrote this Bible study about Gideon from the book of Judges, and, and we loved the process. We were able to get it published, so it ends up on Amazon and all this kind of stuff. We're excited about it, right? This is November of 2012, but see, uh, as it started to kind of uh, get some people to buy it, a few months later, Priscilla Shirer released a Bible study about Gideon. Right, so it comes out, it's like March of 13, like five or six months later, I'm like, she took us, she took our idea, right? She took all the people who love Gideon, right? All the people out there who are like, I need a Gideon study. She did it, right? And hers is a bestseller. Ours is less than a bestseller, right? <laughs> right, so there's this Bible study duel. We need to have a Bible study face-off, Right? And, and I'm tempted to feel that way, but then I go, no, wait a second, what, what is true? What is true? Another opportunity for people to study God's word, to learn about who he is, and to grow in their walk with Jesus Christ. Right now, I don't think Priscilla Shirer meant us any ill will. I don't think she even knows who we are. (laughs) But in Paul's case, they knew exactly who he was. 
and they were preaching the gospel to gather a crowd for themselves and take it away from Paul. And you know what Paul says? He says, what then? Only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. And in this I will rejoice. And he oozes with joy again that the gospel is proclaimed. Because he knows God is going to win, right? I don't need to worry about somebody else's motives. I don't need to worry about these factions or my name being out there in the public sphere. There's another place in the New Testament where Paul addresses this kind of thing, and it's in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I have Apollos, and I have Cephas or Peter, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here's what he's saying. Only the name of Jesus is the name that people need to know. They don't need to know about Paul. They don't need to know about Apollos. They don't need to know about Peter. They need to know about Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not the one that died for you and rose again. And if they hear the name of Jesus, but they forget the name of Paul, he says, I rejoice because the gospel is proclaimed. Now to be clear, apparently in Rome, the people that were Uh, preaching the gospel from false motives. They were still preaching the gospel, right? They weren't preaching a false gospel. They weren't preaching heresy, right? Because when Paul faced that in Galatians, he's going to say, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, right? So if there is another gospel, Paul says, let it be accursed. What is Paul getting at? Even rivalry Even division, even sin cannot stop the progress of the gospel. He says, God always wins over difficult circumstances, over imperfect messengers. In fact, as you read throughout uh, the New Testament, and then as you read the history of the church, it's interesting how often God uses suffering and persecution and even division in the church to spread the message of Jesus Christ, right? Sometimes there are church splits and divisions that result in people scattering to different places in their community or even other communities to share the gospel, And the message is multiplied. Other times, as you read through the book of Acts, there's persecution. And the way believers respond to that persecution results in the growth of the gospel. And this this happens all the way up into modern times. Some of you are uh, familiar, perhaps, with the story, one of the, the most powerful stories of the 20th century about persecution and suffering, advancing the cause of the gospel. Many of you know the story of five missionaries in 1956 who were killed on a beach in Ecuador, right? Including Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, because they took the gospel to a tribe called the Alcas. That word Alca, it was a name given to that tribe by by a neighboring tribe that means savages because they were killers. They took revenge on their enemies frequently by spearing them to death. And Jim Elliott and his companions were killed bringing the gospel to this tribe. And yet what happened? Well, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, went back into the same tribe to preach the gospel of how Jesus Christ died innocently at the hands of wicked men to bring eternal life. Their response to suffering and persecution had such a powerful impact on that tribe 
that many, many of them trusted in Jesus Christ, including the ones who killed those missionaries. Revenge killings stopped. In fact, it's one of the few tribes in the region from that era that is still thriving and growing because they abandoned the violence of their ancestors because of Jesus Christ. You know what else happened? Hearing the story of Jim Elliot motivated thousands of young men and women to become missionaries and go overseas and share the gospel. Again, that's what Paul's talking about. It seems counterintuitive. Why would I want to pick a profession where I might get killed in some foreign land? Because the gospel is worth it. Because we know we're on the winning team. Now, I hear stories like that sometimes and I go, yeah, but I'm really not that heroic, right? I'm not that guy. Maybe you think that too. But each of us in a hundred different ways, day in and day out, have an opportunity to ask the question, will I be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ or will I shrink back? I was reminded this week about uh, how my own dad trusted Jesus Christ when he was in college. His first year in college, he was in a fraternity and there was a staff member from what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ who came to his fraternity house to invite them to an evangelistic meeting and to talk to them about Jesus. And my dad said, we were terrible to the guy. He came in during our meal and people laughed at him and they threw food at him and they made fun of him. And my dad said, I joined right in. But then after he left, I felt bad and I thought, what would make that guy endure that sort of humiliation? Maybe I should go to his meeting, at least hear what he has to say. And so he went and he trusted Jesus Christ because of one person, ordinary guy, willing to endure humiliation and suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ because he knows he's on the winning team. God always wins in the end. So Paul says, even in the face of imprisonment, even in the face of rivalry, I know God wins. That's true for him. That's true for you and me. And so the question for us this morning then is, how should we respond? I'm going to offer a few ways this morning that I think this passage calls us to respond to the reality of God's victory in Jesus Christ. First one is this, do like Paul and we rejoice, we rejoice. Uh, In the book of Philippians, four short chapters in the book of Philippians, the verb for rejoice is used nine different times. Nine different times. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Nine times, more than twice in in every chapter on average. Right, and that's just the verb. The noun is used five times. Joy, 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 joy. One of the major themes in the book of Philippians is that even in the face of suffering, even in the face of possible death, I can rejoice because I know God has the victory. God will always win. And so we say, no matter what else is going on, I can respond with the joy of the Lord because I'm on the winning team. Most of you know the name Michael Jordan, right? One of the greatest, if not the greatest, basketball players of all time. Uh, His uh, best game ever happened in March of 1990 against the Cleveland Cavaliers. He scored 69 points. Excuse me. He scored 69 points in the course of that game. But during the game, there was also a rookie on the team who had just started. His name was Stacy King. Stacy King scored one point. Uh, he got a free throw. He got fouled. He got one free throw. 
They won the game, of course. I mean, Jordan was on fire. They won the game. After the game, when he was interviewed, Stacey King said this in his, in his joy and his excitement. He said, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> and, and I love that story. Right. Because of the joy that, that, that he expresses that Look, man, I was just a little part of what was going on that night and he was on fire and I just got to be there really on the team. But he knew who won the game. Right now, imagine if you were playing and all of a sudden it occurs to you sometime in the second half of that game, it occurs to you, we're not going to lose. Jordan's on fire. We're going to win. Would that change the way you play? Would you play with a little more boldness, maybe be willing to take a few more risks, maybe play with more joy? I think so. If I was on a basketball team with Michael Jordan, you can bet I would at least try to dunk it. I mean, what do you have to lose, right? (laughs) We're going to win anyway. That's what Paul is saying. You're on a team with the creator of the universe, with the God who defeated death, and sin, and Satan. You can't lose. If you believed and internalized the reality that you're on the winning team, that God always wins, and you believe that the gospel is a message of eternal salvation, would that change how you approach those in your sphere of influence who don't know Jesus Christ? Would you live with boldness and joy as you proclaim the gospel? Because no matter what happens, God always wins. So I can go into my spheres of influence and I can proclaim the gospel without fear, even in the face of opposition and the consequences I might face. I can rejoice. Secondly, pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Some of you uh, have seen this morning, we have the Every Knee uh, boards back up at the front of the room and there's one at the back of the room. If you remember when we finished our Every Knee series earlier this year, on the last day when we made our financial commitments, we also came up and we wrote on the board a name and a place, right? A name and a place, a name of somebody that we were gonna pray for to trust in Jesus Christ and a place we were gonna pray for. So on this board, there are cities and countries from all over the world. There are the names of some of your friends and family members that you said, I'm gonna pray for these people. Right. And so this week, I want to challenge us again. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel with these men and women. Remember who they are. If you don't remember, uh, your board might be here. I don't think we brought all of them back today. Right. But come up and remember who you wrote down and pray for those men and women. If you weren't here at that time, there's some markers. You can come and write a name on the board this morning or on that board as you leave to remember each day. I want to be praying for an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with those who need to hear it. And then I want to go boldly into whatever sphere of influence God has given me and share the gospel. To speak the name of Jesus Christ and tell people of the reality that because Jesus died for our sins, because Jesus rose from the dead, all who trust in him can have eternal life. If we believe it's true and we believe that God's purpose will be accomplished through Jesus Christ, then we can go and boldly share the gospel with those who need to hear it. I'm going to close us in prayer and then we're going to uh, close in worship. We're going to close with a song 
about God's faithfulness and the reality that God always wins. And as we sing in a few moments, take that time to worship and thank God for his victory, but also to say, Lord, I want to go where you sent to be bold for your purposes, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of my own sin and imperfection and mixed motives. Will I be faithful and bold to trust in God's victory and rejoice in God's victory because of Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the morning. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, that he died and he rose again so we can have life and we know that we do have life because of him. We pray we would not be afraid, but we would be bold and truthful to share Jesus Christ because we know that we live in a world full of people who don't yet know Jesus. Father, I pray if there are any in this room this morning who don't yet know Jesus, that they would trust him. Father, I pray for those who do, that we would be faithful, that we would be bold to know that you are leading us and that you have already won the victory because Jesus rose from the dead. And so, Father, we pray that we would share the good news at every opportunity. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.